It's Nick Walters again with the Industrial Hemp Growers Digest podcast brought to you by the National Hemp Growers Cooperative. And once again, we've got a great guest who uh, uh, has got uh, more knowledge than he's got sense, maybe half the time. And and glad to have uh, Dr. Trey Little as Little Riddle as our guest today. And um, we're going to be talking about a, a myriad of things throughout um, about the hemp industry, but particularly about life cycle assessments and what the heck that means. So, uh, Dr. Riddle, one of the things I like about you is you don't make us call you Dr. Riddle. You actually let us just call you Trey. That's pretty cool. Thanks for that. You bet. <laughs> well, hey, look, um, uh, in your current job and role that you have as kind of chief strategy officer at IND Hemp, um, and because you are one of the original guys who's still left standing in this hemp industry and have been around and, and got the scars to prove it, right? I mean, that you're still standing through all of it. Give us a little bit of the of your background and let us know a little bit more about kind of um uh, how you got into this and, and part of what your background is, and then and share with us some of your uh, hemp aha moment. At, at what point in time did you really start to uh, dig this plan a little bit? Yeah. Well, thanks, Nick. Happy to be here and uh, be on this podcast. Uh, just so you know, I do make my mother-in-law call me Dr. Riddle. So there I is, would hope. Uh, <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> works. With, it's a symbiotic relationship, you know. <laughs> um, so, oh, no, wait a minute. That's the other one where she sucks the life out of me. That's okay. Funny, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, she's great. Uh, we got a happy, happy family home front and... Um, Thanks to people like her, I've had a lot of support, you know, through my career and, and through the uh, the hemp transition and, and tumultuous times that we've had over a number of years. So my background uh, is actually engineering. So by by uh, education, a mechanical engineer, um, you know, my early career was primarily in polymer composites. So carbon fiber, glass fiber structures, uh, for the most part in the wind industry for the big wind turbine blades that you see on the uh, the big wind power plants there. Um, working at the Department of Energy National Renewable Energy Laboratory, I also did some work in uh, biomass heating and energy systems, uh, done some work in uh, automotive and in novel hybrid vehicle powertrains and diesel aspiration systems. So I've got a, a few different things, you know, a few different errors in the quiver, but for the most part, uh, it was really in, in polymer composites. I had a um, engineering company called Gradient Engineering uh, back in the, uh, you know, around 2012. And uh, we had uh, worked in the polymer composite space and, and we're actually developing a technology to extract bamboo fiber from the bamboo cane cool. uh, with the purpose of replacing glass fiber. Um, and so we were funded by the National Science Foundation under kind of a biomaterials overarching program. So uh, that was really exciting. We had a lot of interest in uh, in the bamboo fiber, and that that led us to spin off a company called Sunstrand. And so I was the founder and CEO of, of Sunstrand, uh, which we got going the end of 2014, set up to be a manufacturer of that uh, technology that bamboo technology uh, in Kentucky. However, at the time we realized that there's a, a big opportunity in general for you know, engineered or technical biomaterials for industrial applications that there was a, a void out there. Uh, so it started with the bamboo fiber, but we brought on a number of other feedstocks. Hemp was one of them. Uh, with the 2014 Farm Bill, we were able to begin working in 2015 with UK and Dr. David Williams and folks like that. 
Um, but uh, but we also did work in canaf, um, spent distiller grains, indigo, uh, flax, agave, you know, specialty woods. I mean, all kinds of things. Uh, so we had some, you know, some some functions that a lot of folks didn't have as far as biomass processing. So uh, we did kind of a myriad of things. And of course, eventually, um, you know, built that business up to, to focus on hemp and, and develop a, a variety of uh, manufacturing centers and a variety of products. And fortunately, we had to close Sunshine down in 2019 due to capital issues, um, as so many people in the hemp industry have experienced, I think, over the years. But um, you know, going 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 broad and deep uh, requires a lot of capital. So um, I then moved on to uh, do a little bit of consulting, but then got picked up by IND Hemp. So right now I am the chief strategy officer for IND Hemp. Uh, so in that regard, I uh, basically handle the finance, uh, sales, and marketing departments, and responsible for overall strategic direction. Work hand in hand with Morgan Elliott, uh, co-founder and, and chief operating officer. Uh, while she manages the production, you know, the manufacturing, agriculture, human resources, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's a great organization, a family, you know, family-owned organization. I'm really happy to be here. Um, we're doing some great things. Of course, we split both sides, the uh, the grain and the in the fiber side. So we really mm-hmm. talk about food, feed, and fiber. And, and now we're talking about carbon. So I'm excited to have some discussions about life cycle analysis because that really fits into, you know, how do we characterize quantify and hopefully provide liquidity for carbon um, and things like LCA are, are critical to that. So, um, you know, I helped stand up our, our brand new fiber plants and it's in production now, 52,000 square foot facility um, just for processing the stalk of the hemp plant. And then of course we have our grain crushing and deholing facility as well. So uh, we do a lot of different things, but dual purpose cropping is, is kind of in our wheelhouse. So that's a that's a little bit of I guess about me as far as my aha moment goes. Um, you know, like I mentioned in in uh, Sunstrand, the original um, you know, the original idea was to be a biomaterial sustainable materials company, and we were going to provide uh, you know have a portfolio of products to find whatever solution was needed for the customer. You know, maybe it was hemp, maybe it was bamboo, maybe it was something else. You know, that was really the idea. Um, you know, but my aha moment sort of came probably around 2017-ish, something in that range, maybe 2018, where, you know, I guess I was fighting it for a while, but uh, um, it was clear that industry wanted him. They wanted to talk about him, and they didn't really care about anything else. So, um, you know, that, it, was really a, it was really the pull from customer base and industry that that led me to, you know, kind of believe, be a believer in hemp and and let go of some of those. I still think there's a lot of great opportunities in other, you know, plant-based and biomaterials. But uh, as far as a workhorse goes, you know, for food and, and nutrition and for uh, industrial fibers, hemp is is straight down the middle and, you know, good costing, good performance, um, good agricultural, you know, integration into our infrastructure. So, um, it was really, it, it, was, it was a little bit begrudgingly that I guess that I came over to the uh, the dark side here, but it was as a response to the demand from industry. That's really cool. Now, remind us, home home for you is where? You're now in Belgrade, the greater, well, the greater Bozeman, Montana, right? That's um, right. Uh, working with Andy, but where's home home for you? Well, I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, okay. So you're Kentucky, you've got full, full, and where, where'd you get your PhD? 
Uh, Montana State University. Did you really? Okay. So this is not your first trip out that direction. So that, that No, no. I came out here in the, the late 90s and, and, and fell in love and did my bachelor's here and then hiked over to New York and did my master's at Cornell and then came back and did my PhD at Montana. And uh, this is definitely home for us now. Look at you. All right. It's, as long as it's cold, you're okay. Right. I mean, if it got too hot, you wouldn't, you uh, um, <clears throat> that's cool enough to be able to do too. That's terrific. So um, let's talk a little bit about life cycle analysis, LCA, when we, we use it as a term, like we all love a good acronym, right, that we want to be able to talk through. So what does that really mean, uh, a, a life cycle analysis, as it relates particularly to what we're talking about within the hemp industry? Yeah, so it's um, it's a it can mean quite a few different things, and generally it's a very all encompassing uh, analysis. And so the question we get asked a lot of times is, you know, what is the impact of a sustainable product or the circularity? Um, you know how you know how much carbon sequestration is performed in in the product. I mean, those kinds of questions have to take into account kind of a cradle to grave uh, analysis, and that's what the LCA is. It you know it starts at the at the beginning of of some you know manufacturing process or forestry process or or agricultural process, whatever it is, and then it goes all the way to, to disposal, um, and you know or or you know or, or recycling or whatever. Um, and so the the goal of the analysis is to quantify at each step in that you know in that process from cradle to grave. You know, what is our environmental impact? Um, and you know, of course, the way you do that that could be anything from um, looking at transportation of a material to a manufacturing center and saying, okay, how much diesel was used, and and how much energy went into manufacturing the truck, and you were know, the emissions from the truck, and so it's a it's a holistic analysis of all those points in the value chain, um, and to try to try to put numbers to you know are we are we you know positive or, or negative in in terms of what you know, different metrics like the most common one is going to be greenhouse gas emissions that's that's probably the traditionally the most common one. Now I think we're looking at, um, you know, more what is our our CO specifically CO two sequestration and, and in that regard durable sequestration. But uh, we shouldn't forget about you know the ability to recycle. I mean that's a that's a big piece of this. And so the question is, you know, what is that end of life? Because that has a big impact. Which is just going into a landfill? Can it be compostable, biodegradable? Can it be recyclable? You know, all these things have different impacts on the uh, on the environmental footprint. So um, in the hemp space, uh, you know, it's a challenge because we can do so many different things. We always hear about the 20,000 different usages of hemp. So, right. yeah, the you know, 12 of them can make money, but that's. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped at about 12. OK, so that's a, that's a, I haven't gone past that much. <laughs> Um, but to do the analysis right, you have to have those. It, it's on a per vertical basis, right? I mean, so you can't just generically prescribe the analysis to hemp. You know, it's it's got to be to um, you know putting hemp fiber in a car door panel, you know, or um, or putting it into the construction. You know, putting hemp herd into a, a home's construction for for hempcrete because all those different verticals are going to have different impacts your different energy consumption or different emissions or different uh, end of life, depending on what that application is. So it's really challenging. And that's one of the great things about hemp is that we have uh, so many different places we can penetrate uh, commerce 
but you know that requires a tremendous amount of effort and life cycle analysis. So you you would typically pick a scenario. You know, we'll take hempcrete for example, right? Mm-hmm. And say, okay, you know, what is the carbon footprint of building a hempcrete house? And and you can start all the way down, you know, kind of at the genetic level from you know planting seeds and diesel in the tractor and all the different harvesting processes. Uh, and then what are your what are your inputs? You know, the fertilizers and all that. Uh, you know, what's your yields and then to the you know manufacturing center and how much energy does it is it produce and what are the byproducts and you know what's going into the trash can versus going into the product and um, what needs to happen after that in terms of conversion? We get to hempcrete now we've got to add Portland cement to it. What's the environmental footprint of Portland cement? You know, we're gonna put it into the building. And then we start talking about some interesting things as well about what are we replacing, you know, because uh sometimes yeah. Um, you can kind of get a double whammy, right? So in the, you know, in, in the event that you're replacing something like a fiberglass, so mm-hmm. fiberglass insulation, you know, the go-to insulation for uh, for construction um, is a high, high energy demand in the manufacturing. We're going to take sand and we're going to melt sand at high temperatures and we're going to spin it into a fiber and we're going to glue it together in these bats and then ship them all over the country. It's going to be, you know, lightweight and fluffy and and all that. So um, so, so glass fiber insulation is, is pretty energy intensive. And what do we use? You know, we use coal or, you know, predominantly for that kind of thing. So now, you know, we're, we're looking at the, what are we offsetting in terms of the manufacturing, the impact of the glass fiber, as well as, okay, what were the benefits of using the hemp? For instance, we sequestered a, a, a tremendous amount of greenhouse gases in the uh, plant growth cycle and the biology of the plant. So, um, you know, hemp is a lignocellulosic material, primarily made of cellulose and lignin. Uh, so, you know, what is that? Well, that, that in large part is carbons, 40 some odd percent of the plant yeah. is carbon. Yeah. And, you know, and when you look at, so by biomass, right? If you're gonna have whatever, a, a thousand pounds of the acre yield or 10,000 pounds of the acre yield, if you have 10,000 pounds of the acre yield of straw, you got, you know, 4,000 some odd pounds of carbon in the stalk. Well, where'd that carbon come from? Well, it came from the air. Well, we don't have really have just, you know, carbon in the air. We have CO2 in the air. So we're actually sequestering CO2 into, you know, into the, the plant biology. And you actually get a multiplier because, you know, the CO2 molecule is sort of heavier, you know, than just the carbon molecule by itself. So, um, so you actually sequester. If you have four thousand pounds of of carbon in this in the per acre in the stalk, you actually sequestered. I forget what the multiple. I think it's like two point three. So close. You sequestered closer to ten thousand pounds of CO two from the atmosphere. So these are the kinds of numerical games you can play. You look at the glass fiber and say, well, it would have emitted, you know, whatever per pound, and then you know, hemp sequestered whatever per pound. And so you get to add the two things together and then you put it into a house. It's one of the few examples where you have durable sequestration and um, durable sequestration. I mean, it doesn't do you any good. You know, if you, if you replace the plastic, um, you know, and you, uh, and you put it into some single use thing, like a, a bag for a grocery store or straw, you know, or, even, um, you know, just any kind of consumable because it's just going to end up in the landfill anyway. We're just going to emit sure. that stuff back in the atmosphere. So we talk about durable sequestration. Typically, something that's stored for over 100 years is generally defined as durable. So our houses last hundreds of years. So putting that hempcrete into the house, 
gives you a durable, you know, sort of a permanent pseudo permanent solution for that for that CO2. And so that's kind of an example of a greenhouse, I'm sorry, a life cycle analysis where you start all the way at the farm level, go all the way to the application and characterize the uh, the impact along the way from energy and emissions and uh, all those kinds of things. Well, you know, to quote Chevy Chase, you know, it was my understanding there'd be no math. So if I if I do if I do too much, then 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 uh, my liberal arts background is is you know swimming. All right, trying to so let's back up for a couple of pieces. That's really awesome. Thank you. No, that's a that's a great that's a great overview of that. <laughs> my my first question would be all right, going through all the rigmarole that it takes to be able to create this life cycle analysis, and let's just stick with hempcrete, okay? As a as a ultimately who gives a hoot about all that? I mean, is it ultimately just because we want to feel good about ourselves to know that we are are helping the environment, which I don't mean to placate or poo-poo that I'm just saying, or is it no, the folks who were purchasing the home are going to want to know, or the people who, who are on the back end of that want to know, particularly when you get into larger manufacturing and others that want to be able to understand you're not you're not um, greenwashing. You're really doing it's a net positive thing for the environment. We want to know all of that. And if you, somebody can't show me the math, kind of like we would do when we were in, you know, elementary school, and we'd be working math problems, right? We had to show you. We had to, we couldn't just say this is what the answer is. We had to show the show the math, right? On on how we got to that answer. Is ultimately the marketplace the ones that are driving the need to even do life cycle analysis in the first place? Yeah. Well, if we get too technical again, you can just go and just <laughs> get really ready for that, that putt. Um, Caddyshack references here. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it depends on where you're at. Uh, certainly the consumer is much more aware and the consumer prerogative is, is driving change. Now, the reality is a homeowner, you know, that's buying a house isn't necessarily I'm going to dig into a life cycle assessment program. They're just going to want the warm fuzzy of of knowing they did something good, you know, in in their wall system. But um, but then you get into the industry at large, and then it's kind of then you have to be able to communicate and which solution is better than another solution. How do we compare and contrast? So at the industry level is probably where you know, sort of the math becomes a bigger role than at the consumer level. Um, but what we see in Europe is you know regulatory environment mm. that requires characterization of the of these products right so um you know nowadays europe has regulations on the end of life or california has has started to have some regulations as well so um you know i think that as a society we'll, we say we got to do better right well okay what is better and mm. of course the government likes to tell us what's better so they'll, they'll come in and, and um, help provide that framework um, you know, and, and, and that's that's one way that drives it. Um, another, of course, is the uh, carbon credit trading platform that's you know sort of in the in the works, and I think we're going to really see that in a big way. Um, there are already you know requirements on uh, emissions, and you know for major emitters, um, you know, you got coal power plants or major you know chemical plants manufacturers, that kind of thing. So there are requirements there for them to maintain through the Clean Air Act. Uh, some emissions. And so they need to have a mechanism. If you're not going to, if you can't change your process, you got to, 
you got to sort of find out how to pay somebody else to change their process. And, mm. and so you need some form of currency, right, to be able to do that. And, and generally, carbon credits has evolved as the currency by which we can sort of, you know, trade back and forth between some power plant that's never going to get any cleaner, but they can help encourage wind energy, you know, and buy wind energy credits to offset their their emissions. Right. And so the you know kind of the best the best currency there is is defined by life cycle analysis and you know eventually i'm sure we'll see i think we start already are grading of this currency right so you got your you sort of your grade a b and c you know credits and those will fundamentally be defined by the life cycle analysis you know what what is the true impact what is the true footprint um you know of uh, of the product or or process or whatever um, and one thing we haven't talked about, which is related, is is soil carbon as well. Yeah, and, you know, not just what we sequester into the product itself, but what we put into the soil is is also playing a bigger role these days. But it, do you think for the the more the near term, it's really going to be the ultimate kind of and I, the marketplace is just a big old broad way of saying it. But let's just take it down to a different level. If I am an investment fund that has said, yes, we are really going to do the things not only for ESG and other things as well, but we are very much focused on understanding life cycle analysis of what's being done on things in which we invest, the standard by which they might invest in a XYZ facility, not just a hemp facility, but any other facility or, or manufacturing process that they might invest in, they want to be able to say we're comfortable based off of the life cycle assessment of what's been done through that particular process. But then they might invest in another thing tomorrow that might use a different version of a life cycle assessment, but it's still basically kind of getting them to the end and they get to be the decider, if you will. Yes, this process, until there is some internationally understood absolutely way of the way you do the analysis and what the math is and what how that backs up, in the meantime, it really kind of seems to be like the, the the marketplace is the one that's going to be driving the people to want to take the time and the money of what it takes to go through one of these analysis. And we've got blockchain software, other things like that to help kind of along the way to be able to verify and quantify those things. That's kind of where we're headed until there's some, you know, International Council of LCAs that, that, that come up and say, here's our standard that we all agree to. Is that kind of right, or is that a little goofy? Yeah, I, I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't forget about academics. Uh, they play a big, a big role in this uh, because if these analyses are so cumbersome and can be all encompassing. Um, that that really it originated at the academic environment, right? With uh, researchers digging in and developing tools. So I would, I would probably think most of the tools that are out there to perform the analysis originated at the university level now. Okay. Um, you know, that's the tool, that's not the inputs, right? Um, so, you know, there's there's frameworks that have been developed to to do that math, right? And um, you still got to go in and, and, and put in the variables and say, okay, this, that, and the other, you know, contribute to it. And so I think, yeah, I think what you'll find is some convergence around a set of tools, and, and it almost certainly will be as a function of, of the capital markets because um, you know that's what we are. I mean, we're a free market enterprise. I mean, it's all about you know it's how, uh, capitalism motivates people, right? And we are seeing this ESG environmental social governance movement to find ways to characterize impact 
Um, I mean, it's happening, you know, like B Corp, you know, where we're getting, uh, even on our even on our financial statements, you know, putting in these other ESG metrics and impact metrics and trying to find a way to show uh, not just environmental responsibility, but social responsibility. And social responsibility is, is not, I don't think it would be technically considered part of life cycle assessment, but I think it's going to become, you know, hand in hand because those groups, those, you know, those, those capital players that are looking at investing, they're looking at a more of a totality. They're looking at yeah, right. ESG as a collective. They're not looking at just environmental. Right. You know, they're looking, okay, what is the social impact in, in you know, as well? Um, and so, yeah, I think it, I think, you know, eventually there'll be some hierarchical structure, right? And some folks will come out on top and eventually standards will get developed. But until then, it'll probably be a little bit of the Wild West um, and who's buying and who's selling, right? I mean, that's just right. And, and then what, what do two parties agree on as the framework? Do we use, Cornell's framework? Do we use University of Kentucky's framework? Do we use the part of ag? I mean, there's there's quite a few out there. And there are there are um private businesses that offer LCA analysis, you know, third-party analysis. There's a bunch of them uh as well that you know that can perform those functions. And and then there's the verification, right? So lots of times you have, you know, you have the parties, you have the person, you know, the group doing the analysis, and then you have typically have a third-party verification, which is uh, which is a whole nother deal. So you got somebody come in and fact checking as well. So it takes all those players to come together and really agree on the framework and then, you know, and then find the path to, to revenue or marketing material. A lot of it's just marketing collateral, right? How do we market to our customer base, um, you know, our shareholders or whatever? Uh, this gives us a, um, you know, quantifiable way to market what we're doing. Yeah. And so it's kind of, Depends on what your definition of is is for a little bit, right? I mean, as long as the the ultimate person who's writing the check or who is making the purchase or something like that, that they understand it, how you got to where you got to and what analysis and what metrics you use and all the rest of that, and they're comfortable with it, then that can be a part of it. And it doesn't mean that it, it's got some super duper international stamp on it. You've shown enough about what you're doing, whether you're pulling together all these different groups that do what methodology you use and who actually does the verification and all the rest of that. Ultimately, it gets down to, okay, we're comfortable with that. And so the capital markets end up driving a lot of that piece, which is cool. I mean, that that, that that's a that that's a part of what it is. What why do you think um help then is any better than uh strictly talking about agricultural crops, right? As it fits into LCA, why does why would hemp stand out more than some of the other fibers and things and groups that you've worked with? Yeah, yeah. Before I answer that, though, let me make one last comment on your last comment, which yeah. is, you know, there are industry groups that have decided to join together and define the rules by which we play. So the textile industry is, is an example. So they they've sort of converged on a standard. I think it's called the Higgs or something like that. You know, so there are so industry groups can come together and say, this is what we're going to use as well. Good and clarification. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's not that it's not happening to use a double negative. OK, I mean, it's it's still. In the but it's all as far as a greater bigger industry. There are some that are jumping out ahead of the others to make sure. Probably, let's just say, using the textile industry as an as an example, they want to make sure that they've got some standard thrown out there as quickly as they can, so that that when people are buying a pair of blue jeans or they're buying a a, a sweatshirt, 
they're going to know this was not done by some kind of child labor place somewhere and we haven't gone through and taken a whole bunch of you know burned up a bunch of forests somewhere to be able to get enough fuel to be able to turn the electricity on to make them you know all of that stuff they want to make sure because probably the their marketplace is putting the pressure on them to understand as well we want to know these things before i'm willing to go buy a shirt from you uh yeah. and so it's kind of the marketplace plus the capital markets coming in on, in on all of that so it's kind of a cool time to be able to be in the midst of it I'd yeah think. yeah you bet you know if, if we if we can all get along and agree then uh we can get some stuff done I think. <laughs> hold hands I'm, I'm that's that's all cool which is actually tell me about the hemp piece though i mean why hemp i mean obviously we care about it but there are other crops and other things that could fit into that that marketplace i could go through and change out my fleet of uh, vehicles and just put biodiesel in there and I could get some smiley faces along the way or I could take in my manufacturing facility say hey we're only going to use wind and solar and we're not going to have any electricity that comes from coal-fired power plants or whatever I mean there's those things that I could be doing anyway right if I'm somewhere in that supply chain but but what what is it about hemp that makes this uh attractive maybe to um uh, the marketplace and the capital markets too. Yeah. And, and I think you make a good point, something I think a lot of us in the hemp industry that are passionate about it, about it kind of forget, which is hemp isn't necessarily a, a silver bullet. You know, I think, you know, to make real change in our, in our society, we're talking about a buckshot approach, right? Mm -hmm. We got to do a bunch of, we got to do all of those things you said also, right? It's not, it's not us or them. It's not, you know, solar or biodiesel. It's, it's both. Right. And so, um, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about hemp, though, is that we're at, you know, at a nascent we're at the beginning of an industry, which theoretically would ideally allow us to implement processes and procedures from day one that are more creative or uh, can, you know, satisfy the requirements better rather than have to rewrite the rule book from 100 years of agronomy or manufacturing that 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 is an opportunity for hemp, although that's a lot harder, you know, a lot harder done than said, I would, I would say, but, um, but, but certainly I think there's a lot of hope there that we can do things a little bit different from, from the beginning uh, for him. Um, as far as the agricultural commodity goes, I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not an, you know, an expert in, in all of those, but um, probably hemp's, you know, allure is its versatility. Uh, you know, there aren't a lot of crops that have so much versatility, you know, to be able to be used in so many different places. Um, you know, clearly, if we take something like soybean and we crush it down to an oil, we effectively have all the petrochemical, you know, verticals that come out of that. OK, that's fine. Um, so but it's really kind of a, um, a bait and switch almost. I mean, if you're going to just deconstruct it down to some molecular level and reconstruct it as something else. I mean, that's what, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with rayon or viscose fiber. I mean, we take wood and essentially deconstruct it into a soup and then reconstruct it into a fiber. Um, and sure, it's from nature, kind of, you know, but um, we've really assaulted it. So, uh, so hemp has a lot of, has a lot of versatility, um, you know, to make impact in, in probably a broader scale, um, which is a, which is a lot of, it was primarily a function of its biology, you know, which is that it has the grain, it's an oil seed crop, it's a superfood, right? the perfect balance of omega three sixes and nines it's almost a perfect protein a, a great amino acid profile you know tons of dietary fiber i mean so you've got a lot packed into that um you know and then on top of that we've got the stalk which is a which is a woody biomass 
um, and has a very strong, you know, lightweight fiber, as well as a, a very absorbent um, and lightweight inner woody core of the herd. And so it's really this package deal that makes hemp so powerful, right? That that we can kind of look at whole plant utilization. Um, we haven't even talked about, you know, CBD or nutraceuticals and that kind of thing, but, right. um, um, you know, and the health, you know, the health benefits therein. Um, but, you know, now there aren't a lot of plants out there that are, that can be so ubiquitously used in, you know, in our uh, commerce. Now, you know, the flip side of that is um, they're not, it's not all created equal, right? I mean, so you not only do you have different varieties, you've got different growing regions, you've got different, you know, market hotspots or manufacturing hotspots. So, so that can be a little bit of a challenge to kind of figure out, you know, what you want to be when you grow up, where you're at. Um, but the reality is that, you know, hemp can be grown in so many different climates and so many different regions and for so many different applications that, you know, there should be a home run in, in most areas of the world uh, to be able to find their sweet spot there. You know, the, the right genetics that work with their climate, soil conditions, planning density per acre and harvesting and all of these factors that come into that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? Whereas you see corn and soybeans growing in the Midwest and, yeah. and they're doing the same thing all day, every day. Um, you know, hemp also has a lot of, of biomass yield. So when you look at, you know, carbon or greenhouse gas sequestration per acre, I mean, it's one of the top, you know, the top performers. I mean, you've got some other things out there like bamboo and miscanthus, um, but um, bamboo is not a not an annual crop. You know, typically talking three to five years before you can harvest that. Um, miscanthus doesn't really have the same type of fiber properties. You can kind of take it down to um, ethanol or something like that, but you don't have all the other applications in textile. Right construction materials, so you're kind of limited. Um, but, you know, the, the hemp stalk can basically, in two years, produce as much woody biomass as a 20-year poplar forest, right? Um, so it's it's a lot of potential biomass to yield. And, you know, the root structure, the deep taproot, so not a lot of other commodities have a deep taproot, which does a few things. One, it breaks up the hard pan in some soils, um, can access Nutritional profiles lower in the soil or water loyal lower in the soil, which makes it more adaptable. Um, you know, in, it could also leave more plant residue in the field for compost for future years and, you know, returning nutrition to the soils. The process of redding by, you know, definition is decay and we're seeping, you know, uh, nu nutrition back into the soil. Um, so it's really, it's a holistic concept, I guess, why hemp is so powerful between all the different applications and impacts and plus the, you know, the fit for different, you know, agricultural processes, um, that there's really no other crop that can do all those things. Yeah. And, and you throw all that, just the, just what we know about above ground carbon sequestration and what a great job that's doing and the remediation that's going on and getting all this cadmium and chromium and, you know, all this bad stuff out of the soil too at the same time. When you start to line it up and starting to A plus C plus J plus Q and throw it all out there and net it out, I mean, that's one of the things that, that why I would think that in an LCA that also includes hemp being a part of that mix, we're going to be able to have some smiley faces in there and not only some smiley faces, but we could probably offset because of some of the good, any of those processes that might not be as environmentally okay yet. Okay. So, you know, yes, this was farmed on a, you know, harvested on a farm that did not use biodiesel because let's just use that as an example. And that's just kind of the way they did it. But 
because of how much the soil is much better and because the carbon still being sequestered, da, 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 you net out in some, you know, positive thing. And, and so all of that kind of gets rolled in, right, in, in a way to make it. There's a lot of things going on with all that, dude. So that's... um. Uh, that's why I'm glad you came on here and used your uh, doctor, Dr. Riddle, for us to be able to use and throw out some big words like ubiquitous, things like that. People like me, I'm going to go back. I have a thesaurus open so I, in a dictionary so I can go through and figure out what some of those words mean. Hey, uh, man, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us something to think about. Um, tell us how people can connect with IND Hemp and learn more about the good things that IND is doing. Yeah, and the, and, the, and the goodness of hemp too. Um, so obviously, we got the uh, the website indhemp.com. Uh, uh, you can find us on Instagram. We're pretty active there. Also on Facebook, um, and you know, at the website, we've got all the contact information you know available. So that's certainly the easiest way to get there. We got some great YouTube videos up. I mean, you can see videos. We're a open door policy. You know, we uh, we invite industry in, and we don't uh, we don't see competition. I mean. Um, you know, we're not worried about IP, I guess. I mean, we we, we really want to be supportive of the industry as a whole. Um, and so there's lots of videos of our processing centers online, lots of videos of our agriculture and harvesting and planting and farmers. Uh, we take a lot of, you know, pride and we see a lot of value in our, our farmer network. I mean, at the end of the day, IND Hemp is focused on uh, improving rural communities by adding jobs or uh, providing, you know, uh, other sustainable uh, crops like hemp or alternatives to commodity price fluctuations. Um, so you'll see a lot of stuff about that. But yeah, you know, check out our website and, uh, you know, reach out and the contact us uh, portal there. And and I'm sure we can find something uh, that might meet your needs. Well, I would hope so. I mean, y'all are, uh, IND is certainly is um, uh, an industry leader and the work that Ken and Julie Elliott have done, as well as what um, uh, Morgan and um, uh, all the whole team up there. I'm pleased to say that I have been there three times. Okay. Um, I don't know if there's a frequent flyer program or not, but if there is, I want to apply for it because uh, it's always great to be around folks like y'all that are thinking about things, care about the industry, literally putting your money where your mouth is to be able to move things forward. And um, uh, uh, they're Obviously, ability to be able to bring good people to the table to work with them is important, too. So that's why you're there. So, Trey Riddle, thank you so much for talking to us about LCA and give us an update on things going on in IND Hemp. If you're interested in learning more about the National Hemp Growers Cooperative and why we are committed to building wealth for our members through regenerative agriculture and sustainable development, you can always go back to our website at National Hemp coop.us and uh, not only hear past episodes of the podcast but learn a little bit more about the things that we're involved in as well so until next time thanks this podcast produced and distributed by mwb studios